We're not doing it to impress somebody so that they believe in us more. We're doing it because it works and we're doing it because it makes our job easier and we get smarter, more efficient, better, and it propels our flywheel of all the other things we're doing. Welcome to the Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. This is the fifth year that we've done a year-end recap. And when we first started these, I think we were just trying to you know, fill an episode at the end of the year. And these have actually become really important. They are important uh, for how we have looked at the last year. Uh, it makes us think deeply about how we think about Fort and our company and really it's just really cool to see how things have evolved over the years. I mean, I was listening to uh, 2018 uh, like a week ago. It's just, it's hilarious. So if you're listening to this and you've never been able to listen to our past years, after listening to this, I think it would be cool of you to go listen to prior episodes and you can kind of see how our thought has evolved, how we think about the company and what we're executing on. Uh, It pinches me. So At Fort, our mission is to become the best real estate operator in the world. We think about this business in terms of how do we operate better. So the more real estate we can buy, uh, our credibility gets stronger. We can uh, promote our track record to investors. This helps us attract uh, talent and top-tier candidates to come work with us. As they join, we operate our assets even more efficiently, which drives more profitability and higher returns for our investors which we hope would strengthen our reputation and our partnerships in the market. That helps us gain economies of scale. And then we're back to the top of the flywheel, which helps us acquire more real estate and continue to scale. Today, I think you will hear a lot about how we have continued to scale over the last couple of years, but really how we've improved operations. So uh, without further ado, we're going to start with some of the highlights of 2022, and then we'll go from there. So Jason, uh, let's kind of start with some of the things that caught your attention this year of, of big wins for the company. Yeah, much like last year, you don't often step back and as you're going through the entire year and, and really think about all the progress you're making because it's happening real time. And then you get to these moments in time, especially at the end of the year, and you start looking backwards and you start adding up and actually documenting all the big things that happened. And every year we think, how did we do that? How did we get that done? How could we have accomplished that? And last year, listening to, I know we both talked about listening to last year's update before we came into this one, which we try to do every year just to refresh ourselves on where our mindset was. And last year, we had broke so many records internally for our company and and what we had set out to do and and destroyed it. And, and talking about it last year, you could just hear it that we had we're, we're amazed at how much we were able to accomplish, but also we had done all the work needed to accomplish it. And then we start this year and 
uh, there was one thing that I said at the end of last year or when we were talking, you had asked me a question and um, like where my mind was. And I said, you know, we had such an amazing year. We had done 500 plus million dollars in transactions the prior year. And um, which was far more than uh, two and a half, three times what we had expected to do or what our original goal was. And we said, I said, uh, you know, I hope we can accomplish that again. I think we're capable of it, but that might've been an outlier. I hope it wasn't, right? Because we had just done so much in such a short amount of time and it was such a leap forward. And we talked about why that was a leap forward because of the foundation we had built. And then we had this year, right? And we went into this year and we talked about it at, at last year's discussion that we were going into this year with more of a pipeline established and deals we were working on, I think to the tune of 80 or $90 million we were starting the year with. So we had a good start, but no one knows what the year's going to hold. And, and we knew that the economy might start to get shaky. But that being said, we ended up accomplishing even more than we did the year before. And so I'm, I'm excited to go through it with people today and, and, and hope that everybody can take something from it. I know we have, and, and we joke about it, but this is really as much as it is for us to be able to share this with the audience is for you and I to document it and be able to talk about it and flush these thoughts out of our mind so that we can go back and, and continue to push forward by listening to it. And so, um, I would say the biggest thing is that the goals that we set the year before that we crushed, we set as aggressive goals this year coming in and we crushed those goals as well. So last year, we or the year before we did 550 or 520 million in total transactions. About half of that was sales, about half of that was acquisitions. This year, we did um, over $500 million of just acquisitions. We didn't sell, we sold a little bit. We sold about 35 million. That's nothing to sneeze at. We're talking in different scales now, but we sold about 35 million. So in total transaction volume this year, we actually did more than we did the year before, which you know we're we're extremely grateful for. But what I'm most impressed uh, with is our ability to do $500 million worth of transactions more efficiently than we even could have possibly imagined when we were doing $70, $80 million in transactions. We did it with essentially the same team, the same amount of people, much, much uh, improved team, obviously, because we've been doing it a lot longer now. But uh, where we really have to add resources when you grow at this pace is through property management and some accounting. But in terms of the core team, we didn't really have to add, we didn't have to add more people in order to accomplish the same thing. And if you listen to the last year's episode, when we talk about this, we talk about the whole purpose of us establishing flywheels, uh, working on our company operations was to, to remove as much entropy from the company and gain as much energy and do as much as possible with less, right? So maximize what you have and see how much you can accomplish. And I would say this year was a testament to that. And the most amazing thing is we could have done a lot more. We shut down, not shut down, but we slowed down much like the economy did around August, September and starting to uh, be more conservative as interest rates change and starting to slow down the pipeline a little bit just to make you know really smart decisions as things were changing. And so most of what we accomplished happened by really August into the first of September. And so the fact that we did all that within a eight or nine month period, and of course there was some stress and strain at times when you're doing that many deals, but I would say the team would even vouch for this, that, uh, 
it was way less painful than anyone would have imagined. And we definitely could have done more. So I think we're just primed to do so much more. But that the amount we did with the team that we have and how efficiently and somewhat painless, they would probably, they're going to get mad at me for saying it was painless because it wasn't painless. But in the grand scheme of things, what we were able to accomplish was uh, phenomenal. And uh, that that number is just uh, amazing. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, 2021 money was flown freely. I mean, we'll yeah. all look back at 2021 as just the, the. I mean, it should have never happened. I mean, it was, yeah. it was a crazy year. Uh, we took advantage of it in a lot of ways. And so to have just crushed 2022 in a different, you know, atmosphere, not saying we, you know, give ourselves extra pats on the back, but it, we did double what we did in 2021 with a lot more uh, uncertainty in the market, uh, banks starting to not lend, equity starting to, to pull back. Um, and we've stayed really committed and focused to what we're doing. Uh, the team has gotten, as you said, just unbelievable. Uh, yeah. continues to excel. And maybe we can just kind of start there is at a high level. How has the team progressed this year from your perspective? Yeah. Every year it just continues to to compound in terms of alignment. And and I think what obviously every year when you have a the same team uh, and people are continuing to push themselves and grow and we have ways that we're doing that, which I'm sure we'll talk about but the alignment continues to get stronger as these people are growing. There's something that you, you don't, it's hard to even put a metric to it or to uh, really say exactly what it is, but it is that shared consciousness that continues to build to where the alignment is, is a natural thing that happens within the company. And everybody's speaking the same language. Everybody's moving in the same direction and everybody's trying to accomplish the same goal. And every year that gets better and better. And this year, um, there, it was just uh, at an all-time high. And I, I know it's not, that doesn't mean we're at the top, It's but it's better than it's ever been. And um, the, the team continues to take advantage of the things that were put in place two years ago in terms of foundation and only make it better. So I would say the thing that really stands out in terms of the improvement of the team is our ability to solve problems. We, we've always been a company that's always solving a problem, getting better, solve a problem, get better, fail fast, you know, learn, grow, learn, repeat. Grow, repeat. We, we, we do that really well, but the way we do it now is like nothing I've ever seen. I, it's hard to even imagine how uh, well a company can identify a problem know the solution. And I don't just mean like, oh, I know how to solve that and say it. I'm saying to implement it into a company, into process, into a system, automate it and never have to worry about it again. That happens so often in our company that it is now just a part of how we communicate. As soon as we identify something that is uh, pain or uh, loss of time or uh, entropy, something that is causing friction in the company, it's sniffed out and solved in a matter of days or weeks. Sometimes they take longer, but once we identify it, there is no doubt in my mind that is going to get better. Yep. Um, and, and that process typically in the past, those things get put on the back burner because you're busy, you're doing work. And so you want to solve those things, but they linger or you don't, you put a bandaid on it uh, or you just give it to somebody and try to solve it. Our system of solving these problems and putting them into our processes and systems. And the team actually 
now takes the initiative to do that because they don't want to deal with that pain again. And the way that we set up our ability to solve those problems, the team can actually do it. We don't, there's not one person that needs to go solve the problem or to implement it. It's a team effort. And so um, I would say that th that is going to be a toolkit that we have that is going to take us so far in terms of what we're able to accomplish from an operating standpoint, because the company improves at a rate that I've just never seen. And, and you know, uh, from my background working with a much bigger company and seeing how as it grows, you naturally get these inefficiencies because of processes or bureaucracies or one person does something one way or one person does another way. Our company is just built to not have that happen and everybody actually appreciates it. And so they're incentivized to not go outside of that process because it doesn't actually solve the problem. They actually know that this is the best path. Mm -hmm. And so that alignment and that ability to solve those problems is just phenomenal. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we do some of that. Let's start with some of our, our big company wins. I, okay. I'm going through our, uh, our year-end meeting that you and I recently had, uh, and we'll go through, we had 12 of them. We'll probably go through eight or nine of them. Sure. Uh, we'll start with quarterly investor reporting, uh, revamp process, updated design rolled out in Q3. Why is that important? That was a huge win. Uh, so every year in terms of continuous improvement and even what I just mentioned, solving a problem, we have a that process in place on how we solve it. So once we identify a place that we need to improve the company, we're, we're also using that as an opportunity to now raise the bar across the whole company. So when we go to tackle something like quarterly investor reporting, we had a good investor quarterly investor reporting process in general, we ha we got it done. Basically, is what I'm saying. We every, we had a way that every quarter we like clockwork. It went out on time, consistent, accurate, uh, good information for the investor. Um, no complaints on their side. We didn't get very many complaints at all. So we we from the outside world, they would say, "Well, you had a good process." What we saw internally was an opportunity to uh, streamline the process because we were spending a lot of time to get to that point every quarter. Also, we thought the output, the actual report itself, there was a huge opportunity to improve how the information was presented, how it looked, um, and how we could uh, make that automated so that that look and feel and that information that the investor was getting was the most accurate real time without as much work on the back end to try to get to those metrics and make it look and feel in this in a way that the investor could ingest that information as easily as possible and get the most out of it. And once we start set down that path and said we can do this, the team used the same method I just mentioned about how we solve that problem to systematically create a proposal, which we do in our uh, weekly executive meeting, that outlines the steps that need to be taken in order to achieve that. The team involved, the cost involved, and we set a timeline on it. And though every person that's involved in that then moves full steam ahead to get it done. And then the output of that, now that we see, if, if anybody listening has seen the new investor report, is a totally different investor report than we had just three months prior. But what they don't see is behind the scenes, the amount of effort, one, that was taken to do that, that's one thing. But the amount of effort that has been eliminated from the company in order to achieve that, that is the biggest impact. So we're able to do the same actually better quality reporting in more real time with live reforecasted assets the day of the report or, or shortly therefore, there before 
in a way that takes days where in the past it took weeks. So in the past, we took roughly three weeks of different uh, teams and uh, whether it's accounting, uh, finance, me, marketing, vetting our investor reporting in different functions to make sure that it's all accurate, looks good, no errors, no edits, that sort of thing. Um, and many rounds of that each quarter. So we had a process where over a three or even four week period, it was just around, around the horn, right? Round robin, just keep passing it around until it gets done. Well, when you look at the amount of energy and work and people and time and how much cost a company like ours is spending just to generate that report in terms of human man hours, it, it, it's way too much. But we have to, we're, part of our goal, if you look at the flywheel, obviously returns to the investor is extremely important. So if you can't tell them, then that's a huge flaw. So we know it's top priority for us. And by eliminating all that extra work internally, now we can do that at a higher level to the investor while at the same time having more time to provide more value on operations of the actual assets and finding new deals. So when you think about the that improvement, how much impact it has on the company, it's it's hard to put a uh, a number on, yep. right? It, it's uh, almost immeasurable. But that's an example of by identifying something that appears to be just to make it look better, uh, and feel better, right? From an outside viewpoint, because uh, it's roughly the same information, just way easier to understand and read. But the impact long term, not only for the investor, but for us as a company and the investor on our ability to execute at a higher level, just went up probably twenty or thirty percent across the company because we saved three to four weeks in a quarter not doing quarterly investor reporting on how it's automated. We're going to touch on corn a bit, but that's. That's overhead management right there. That's at overhead its, at its at its best. Yeah, it's it's a trickle down effect that's hard to measure. I'm going to sound biased here. I think we have the best investor reporting in the real estate world. I have not seen anybody that does it better than we do. It's good. We're always looking for opportunity to improve, mostly on how we can get the most accurate real time data with a forward look to show that we are making good decisions in the future. Right. So what we're really looking to do is continue to think through that process of how we can provide the best information so that the investor knows what we're thinking and how we're thinking. And that's that's what we think is critical in those reports. But what it also did, um, and I'll just piggyback on that from uh, raising the bar, that that quarterly investor report now became the new benchmark, at least for now, on how every bit of content or information that we send out as a company should be, right? Not just how it looks. That's in, that's very important. So we do want that to be the the bar for um, whether it's our OMs, our offering memorandums, which we're in the process of updating to match that, or our uh, distribution letters, which we've updated as well to match that. Everything should raise uh, the bar in terms of how it looks, but also how those things are generated, right? So now that we have a roadmap of how we automated how this information flows into this quarterly investor report. We've automated how the design is done. There's not people having to do this. A lot of this stuff is con information that lives somewhere in our system and now is being aggregated into uh, a design that is very hard to create even if you're manually doing it, right? So we've figured that out how to, to automate how these documents are created that, so that they can go out quickly. And now we can use that same toolkit to do 
our distribution letters. We can use the same tool, toolkit to do our offering memorandums. And so now we're able to raise the bar across the whole company. Well, if we save that much time on uh, quarterly investor reporting, imagine how much time we're going to save on offering memorandums when we get a new deal. Now, we have a pretty efficient process in that. We've got that narrowed down to just a few uh, days, three, four, five days. We can usually get those to a point where they're pretty good until we lock in our underwriting. But there's a lot of room for improvement, and this gives us the pathway, the knowledge that we already know how to do it. So now it's rinse and repeat. This was a cool one. Uh, underwriting importer tool. Yeah, I love this one. Uh, Explain what that what that is and why uh, that was such a big breakthrough this year. Yeah. I think anybody listening to this that's dealt in Excel, Excel yeah. is going to have their mind blown here. Yeah. And I, I, honestly, I have no clue if other people have figured this out. And maybe they have, maybe they haven't. I know we fought this battle for a long time, but everybody in the investment world, most people in the investment world use Excel models on a regular basis. And everybody knows that over time, uh, especially if you're underwriting deals, you end up underwriting five, six, 10, 15. We have deals that we underwrite. We're on model 17, 18, 19 before we close, right? You're always tweaking it because of whatever's changing or you got updated rent roll or your loan terms change or uh, your equity changes, whatever it is, you're always tuning the model. And what ends up happening is you're just saving new versions of that as you go. And that information lives in files, usually saved on servers. Uh, and some people do that really well and they organize it well. And some people don't, which we, we feel like we have always organized it really well. But the worst part about that is that all that information lives in a silo that no one ever goes back to or no one ever checks or uh, you don't get any value out of it, right? Even the final model. And what we always struggled with was how do we get that information because of how we've built our, our FOS system and our database, all of our other information, all of our other data lives in our database, except for previously, except for the information that was in our financial models, our modeling, our performance. And over two years ago, myself and the director of technology sat down and we tried to solve this and we had a pretty good idea of how to, we were trying to code the model to map into our database. But it was very hard because sometimes models change, right? Um, and sometimes you, one model has this type of financing and sometimes they don't. And so you, we couldn't, it was really difficult to write one code to map all models into our database and make it consistent and make it make sense. And so we and kinda, real quick, go ahead. why does coding out of Excel into the database, What? Why? who even cares about doing that? Why is it important that we do that? Because we're trying to get the data to get into one place so that we can now compare that data and utilize that data, then pull that data up. Got it. And to then use it for other things like forecasting, like to compare against budgets, like to uh, create reporting, right? Uh, like to even just run your own company uh, financials to look at how you're doing, right? Yep. How, but but also to com if you just said I want to compare all the deals I've looked at this year, right? Either you have an analyst creating a model that's tracking every deal and layering it in each time, or you find a solution where you underwrite it the way you're going to underwrite it anyway. But that information automatically goes into a database. So fortunately, as we continue to grow the company and and scale. Uh, how we do things, not necessarily just growing people, but scale how we perfect our operations. 
we brought on additional staff on our technology team and that have freed up the resources for us to actually tackle some of these problems. And uh, this year we were able to identify a solution where we created a we created our own proprietary plugin into Excel. So if you open any Excel model in Four Capital, there's a Four Capital plugin. And like I said, other people may have figured this out. I'm just saying it's amazing for me, for us, because we did it on our own. And um, that plugin allows us to push the information from our models, all the data. So we select, we don't push it all because we don't need it all, but the selected fields in the models that we underwrite in, we simply push the importer tool. And that tool allows us to push the data from our Excel model just by pushing that one button directly into our database, but also into Yardi, into our accounting system so that we can now live update our forecasting. So we can use the tool to push and pull information, which is pretty phenomenal. So now our models are directly integrated into everything we do. So now if I want to say, let's look at the last 10 deals we did, let's look at the average rents we underwrote, let's look at the average everything, right? Let's look at our final model of everything. What was the PV of cash flow? What was the projected exit cap rate, right? We can look apples to apple across our whole portfolio in an instant. Hmm. And over time, that alone even becomes powerful because now you can start to see trends when the market starts to change or as a company, you start underwriting slightly differently to adapt to the market. And uh, there's you could go on and on, but having that data live in the same database as opposed to uh, in an Excel model, in a file, in a folder that rarely anybody ever goes back to has changed everything we do. And so including how we do our, it's a part of how we do our quarterly investor reporting, how we reforecast. There's so many things that happen now because of that tool that literally take our analyst no time, where in the past they would take them week, days and weeks. So that is actually a part of the quarterly investor reporting, how it got so much quicker was uh, twofold. So we solved that problem during that process of the quarterly investor reporting. So we're extremely excited about that. I love it. Yeah. Company and asset forecasting. Uh, the company and asset forecasting falls in line very similar in terms of that Im importer tool and underwriting. We've always uh, forecasted our assets, but it's been you know a much more uh, lengthy process to go through every asset, reforecast based on what's been done, projecting the future based on new rents, new cash flow, all those things, right? And it's not that it's hard to do it on one asset. It's the fact that we have 40 plus. And so it's always a, a little bit of a lift. That process has gotten way easier. So what we did is we looked at that as an opportunity that we had solved that using things like the importer tool and, and our quarterly investor reporting, how we automate those things so that that data is all flowing together and there's not double work happening to mirror that with how we uh, forecast for our company. And so uh, all of that was redeveloped and reorganized in a way to mirror or to match what we do on an annual basis, which is our annual budgets and our annual operating plans, our AOP at the end of each year. And so those two things align now so that we, uh, they basically work in tandem so that we can project what is going to happen on the assets, Right what we think is going to happen on the assets, what is projected to happen on the assets, what new assets are going to come, because that directly impacts what we're planning to do as a company and what our budgets need to be. And so you can't have one happening one way and one happening the other. Mm. And so those two things overlap each other now. So before we can start 
doing our complete budgets at the end of a year, right? Even by department. So if you think of property management, how is property management supposed to budget for next year if there's not a clear insight into every single asset's performance, CapEx, rent roles and tenant mix, you know, new tenant coming in, going to do CapEx, property management's going to have to do it. There's a fee associated with that. We're going to have to charge that fee, but that's going to be revenue. How do we plan for that revenue, right? We have to know exactly when that is planned to happen. Now, that that there's there can be some fluctuation, but you have to have a plan. You have to start the year saying, uh, we're going to have this rent collection or we're not, right? So you even look at the revenue of the asset. Every asset we know based on the plan for the year and how many tenants are going to be there, when their rent rolls, when we when their rent goes up, what we expect the revenue to be. So then we can, within a, a narrow margin, we should be able to predict how much revenue, i.e. how much property management fee is going to be collected from that asset. So you do that first in terms of uh, understanding that you have completely forecasted the assets, and then you completely tie that to each department's ability to go make a really dialed in budget based on that performance. And the whole point of that is any company should be doing that. But the, what I'm really getting at is that we've tied those two things together, meaning they're into the same process. Mm. And so one flows right into the next. And uh, now as we're making our annual budgets and our annual operating plan, uh, we can't complete this annual operating plan until that is done. So it makes it very, it gives you a lot of confidence that you're not missing anything. You're not creating this budget over here and then hoping that you're going to hit it all. Right. Right. It's all tied together and flows together. So that was a huge win. And I would say this year, our, our budgeting and our annual operating plan, and I know you and I talked about it at the year end in terms of uh, just how dialed in it is. And I would say each year we get a little bit better at that. And uh, I think because of the new process, we've really outlined and identified connecting those this year the next few years are just going to be completely different. And our ability to get that done quickly, same thing. We were spending the last month and a half of the year or really from uh, November to mid-December doing budgets and AOP every year. I think uh, next year that'll be dialed into just a couple of weeks. Deal sourcing tool through Kepler. This is this is an interesting one. <laughs> yeah. And so... Uh, Take a deep breath. Here we go. No, well, I, I'm not going to go into all the nuance in this because it goes deep. Yeah. But uh, we've talked about our deal sourcing on several of these, even starting back two years ago, that we were moving away from the acquisitions model, the traditional last year. We talked in, in depth about not having internal acquisitions people. And we talked about that we create these lists. And this is the extension of that that has always been the plan. It's always been in the original thought process of how we're going to get to this ultimate vision of being able to track deals across the country and have real-time data all the time about the deals that we know we want to buy in any market. And this, this extension of that is the mapping portion of that, which I've always been a huge believer that we need a visual to be able to really see the world, what's going on. Because in a, in a pipeline meeting, what you do is we might have a list of deals that we like and that we're tracking and we have a database and in our FOS system, we have our structure set up where we can track all these deals and we pull the our FOS pipeline report up every week and we we go through deals we're tracking, we've received materials on, we're sending, submitting LOIs on or deals we might be under contract on. We're, we're looking at those every week and that's on a list and that is great. But then what you end up doing is if you want to then dig into any of those or re-talk about them or, or maybe uh, just do some more even if you get into investment committee and you want to dive in, 
naturally what you do is you pull up Google Earth and you look around and you think, uh, that's great. You know, is there anything else in this market? Um, and yeah, you might know some things, but you're really just looking at a building on a map and you're looking at the street view. And obviously by that point, we've usually gone there or somebody's been there, but we're using different tools to just try to make a decision. And what we're on this side sitting here looking at is that we have all this data and we have these lists of properties that we've already identified that match our criteria that we're actively pursuing. And this is in the, the neighborhood of hundreds per market at a time. And so th those could be at any given stage. Like I said, they could be at, we've, we've reached out to them. We haven't, we're tracking them. We're trying to get in touch with them. We've already been negotiating with them. We've submitted an LOI, but they're at all these different stages where our system is tracking where they are in that process. So our vision was if we could get that into a mapping software that, that we could control, we could see all these deals where they stood in terms of uh, how we're tracking them today and where they are in our process and where they are on the map compared to each other, while at the same time looking at all the deals we haven't even pursued yet that do match our criteria and be able to turn those filters on and off. So you basically you get a, your own customized worldview of class B industrial in any market that we like, that we can now start to learn that market in a different way than we believe anybody else is learning it at that time, right? So we're seeing the world through our lens. And uh, we started working on this, like I said, two years ago, and we found the solution. Uh, Greg on our team, uh, I challenged him with this idea, and he very quickly came back with a solution, which was a tool called Kepler, which is the same open source mapping software that Uber used to start Uber. Uh, so this is open source mapping. You, you can build it to your own needs. And so we started using it about two years ago and dumping in the data and we found like you, we could really utilize this tool. Well, again, another one of those projects that, you know, we had a lot of work to do. So we focused on other areas of our acquisitions pipeline and we put this on the back burner. And then uh, earlier this year, we made it a huge priority and same team that was helping solve some of these other problems, uh, put more focus and attention on that. Greg and the team put more focus and attention on that. and. We ended up uh, finding a way to incorporate not only all the data, but Greg figured out a way to also add in some really key features that allows us to run everything we do in acquisitions in our deal pipeline through Kepler, through our mapping. So once we realized that was a real possibility, we set a goal earlier in the year that we would completely get off our ability to use Google or need to use Google in any deal pipeline meeting, any investment committee meeting. And we've successfully done that for the last three months. And so now when we walk into a deal pipeline meeting, we don't use Google Earth for anything. We have our own mapping software. And when we when we look at the buildings that show up on our mapping software, and this is as good as Google, Earth View, Street View, all these things are there. And you have a live street view of every property in the right-hand corner that's live at all times, which is amazing. I love, I love for people to see it because it's amazing. Um, but not only do you just have a view of the world through our lens and the assets we're looking at, every one of those assets has all the data that's in our system. Over 700 data points is inside that property in that map. So when you hover over that map, uh, uh, the field, the box pops up that has all the, the we put the like the top, 12 to 15 critical data points, like who's the the uh, the registered owner, who's the true owner. That stuff's important because 
most people wouldn't think about what that is, but who's registered as the owner isn't always the true owner, right? They use entities, they use other things. So we have a way to decipher that and we're, we're getting better at that. But what, what we're trying to do is have as much relevant information about that asset that when we hover over it, we get an instant view, right? We have a predictive of how much it probably is worth. We know uh, everything that's in... in uh, normal databases that's out there for the world to get, we have. So this isn't necessarily all proprietary information, but the way we gather it together and the way we view it is proprietary to us. So we feel like we have a much better view to be able to search around a market and know everything about the buildings we're looking for. And we only get smarter. So every time we do more uh, investigation or more negotiating or, or more research on a property, that goes into that property's data in our system which then automatically updates what we see on that map view. And if something gets moved forward, so uh, we received the material and now we're uh, sending them an LOI. Well, we updated that in our system, it updates on the map and everything is color coded so we can see a real time view of what we're working on where. Mm. But where I think the most value of the whole thing is, is you can see systematically how you've worked through a market. And now you can start to segment markets and identify where the best the best real estate opportunities are not just because you think they're the best assets, but where are the best submarkets when that within every market that you're working in, and are have you worked through all the potential assets in the best submarket where you're looking, and you just don't miss anything, right? So instead of trying to wait for that needle in the haystack, we're just shooting fish in a barrel, right? So we we created the barrel, all the fish are in there, and now we just shoot them as we need them. And when you say work through a market, just quickly, what does working through a market? mean? Yeah. So if you just imagine a, a, a normal city as a circle, like any DFW, Fort Worth, Houston, they all have loops, right? And then there, there's nodes. So out of the center of every city, there's nodes where they go out and you can just imagine creates pies in yeah. some way, right? Well, if you start to look at the data within that, and I'm talking about the deep data, hundreds, if not thousands of data points, and you start to layer that in, I'm talking about traffic patterns, distribution patterns, truck patterns. Th this is all data that you can go pull to see like, where is the activity? And then you start layering, layering in, where are the people moving? Where are people living? Where are home prices going up? Where were their most transactions last year from a uh, industrial aspect? Where did cap rates go down? Where did cap rates go up? You can see all this. Well, what we do is we're not trying to go try to pick into every single one of those things. We know all those data points add a lot of value. So we let the machines show us by highlighting and shading the map to tell us where these hot spots are, right? And we tell it, you know, if the cap rate's going up, this is, show us what the cap rate looks like in across the market, where cap rate's gone up and down. Uh, show us where there's been the most trading volume. Show us where there's the most uh, distribution truck traffic. And we can see, we can look at each one of these criteria on the map and see obviously where the top, and we try to break it down like this, where the top three sub-markets of any city are. And now that might be different from uh, Dallas to Houston, right? Because in Houston, sub-markets are way different than they are here. The zone, there's no zoning. So DFW industrial sub-markets are very identified. Every city's different. So instead of looking at it by true Submarkets like in DFW, we're looking at basically segments of a city, mm -hmm. right? So we're breaking it up into quadrants or different sizes per city. But 
we're, we're basically creating uh, wedges in the city or blocks within the city and saying any city and saying this is a very attractive spot for these reasons, right? Population growth, demand, trading volume, cap rate compression, rent growth, all those things, right? Occupancy, all the things that we know uh, drive value to real estate. Once we identify that is a hot spot, we know it. Then we say, what what opportunities are within that hotspot? And do we know all of them? Have we looked for all of them? And if so, what's a real opportunity? Those are what we're seeing on our map. So once we've identified those, now we're just going after them. And they may not sell, which we've talked about over the last couple of years. We're not trying to get them to sell next year, but what we're hoping for is that if we've identified them over the next year, two years, three years, we're, we're on top of the potential that if they do sell, we're ready. Right. So that's the key. So if somebody's listening to this going, well, obviously, like anybody knows where the best spots in town are. They think they do. Can you <laughs> expand on that? What, yeah. what would what what separates us from the average? Yeah. So, I mean, the way the market typically works is that it's everybody thinks what everybody else thinks. <laughs> so followers following followers. Right. So people talk about something. Oh, we sold this building in GSW, GSW. So everybody knows certain areas of a city are busy because of where they're located, right? right? And they know that buildings are uh, valuable there because the occupant, it, that's a known thing. What we're looking for is what are we missing, right? So when we can see all this data together, what you see is where there might be a similar aspect to a known uh, location. Like a, if I'm, I'm using DFW for those that don't know, GSW is a very hot uh, industrial submarket in the center of the city. There might be a similar aspect or a similar uh, like-kind area in another market that has way undervalued buildings compared to a GSW Mm. that has the same type of rent growth, the same type of rooftops around it, the same type of uh, occupancy, building quality, uh, uh, distribution traffic, right? Um, There's a lot of things that you see when you look at the data to go, Wait, the GSW is the hottest submarket, but so is this one that's right over here that there's been very little transaction volume, but look, rent growth is going up as well. Or sometimes we're looking for where rent growth hasn't gone up, but all the other dynamics exist. So why is nobody pushing rent there? Right. There's no there's no vacancy. And so you just start to see these opportunities. So it's not a one, it's, there's not one answer, right? What you're doing is you have all the data and now you can ask the right question. Right. Is that the best opportunity? So what we we have a ranking system of how we're and we're we're getting better at this every every day pretty much. But the way we look at these submarkets, we're ranking them for different reasons. But we try to identify where we think the three best opportunities in any market are, and so that's that's where we're at right now. So um, that part is somewhat proprietary in the sense of th- those are how we think, right? I'm not saying we're right or somebody else would do it differently, but when we rank those markets, we think that those are our three best opportunities to have outsized returns, risk-adjusted returns for our investors that other people might not see. And that's what we're going for. My favorite part is in a live meeting, showing people the mapping software and just watching. Because I think a lot of people today like to talk about their business as, you know, we're tech forward, we're a tech company. And we tell people on the phone all the time, like, we're going to preface this by saying, we're a tech company like everybody else says, but when you come in our office, you will actually understand what we mean. We're not just like connecting Slack to Yardy to, yeah. you know, all these other other people's tools. We have built 
internal tools that, like you said, they work for how we think about the world. And that's one of the things I love most about uh, our company is we keep not blinders on, but we keep in our own lane and we believe in ourselves and how we want to look at the world and believe that we're seeing it a different way and that there's value that way. I think there's two and through our most recent discussions with capital partners, I think it's, it's more clarified it in my own mind on why it's important, but there's two different types of real estate companies out there today that, uh, in terms of when you talk about tech, right, there's real estate companies that are being tech forward because that is the path. That's what people believe is the future, right? Which it is to be more tech forward. And they're focused on the tech because of the tech, right? They're trying to be tech forward. <laughs> As opposed to we're a real estate operator who we believe makes uh, as as best investment decisions as we possibly can with every, every bit of data that we can get. And all of the things about our flywheel are first. If you look at our flywheel, the flywheel in there doesn't say anything about technology, but around the border of the flywheel, we added an arrow that says technology and knowledge. And that is just to show you that that propels the flywheel faster. Right, it is not one of the critical buckets of where you focus your attention. It's a, it's on the periphery, and so the way we think of technology is we're using it as a tool to continue to push our company forward. But it is not the selling point. I'm not trying to sell anyone on the technology that that's why we're a great company or that's what someone else is investing in. They're investing in people that are smart enough to make great investment decisions, operate at a high level, and are smart enough to utilize the world's technology that exists today to only make it better. Right. Right. But we're not focused on building the technology because we think people are going to like believe in us more. Right. They should, when they come and see it, it's inevitable, right? It's inevitable that if people come see what we're doing, that they're blown away that, it, that all these things work, but that's not why we're doing it. We're right. not doing it to impress somebody so that they believe in us more. We're doing it because it works and yep. we're doing it because it makes our job easier and we get smarter, more efficient, better, and it propels our flywheel of all the other things we're doing. Yep. And ultimately our investors do better. 100%. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. For me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important, but if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. All right, we'll pick two more. Okay. I think this is an important one. Um, and it's something that uh, I think separates us again as we're observing where we want to put dollars uh, to work process for evaluating new markets. Doesn't everybody have a process <laughs> for evaluating new markets? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. I have no idea. Flyer uh, just comes in and they just say, great, we're entering a new market. Broker sent flyer. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to what we just said on sub markets. I mean, people hear Nashville's hot. Let's buy Nashville. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that easy. Everybody money's flowing to Nashville. The Nas- Nashville must be good. Yeah. Right. But, but do you know why? But what, what we really think about when we enter a new market, and this was a learning process for us this year, because if you listen at the end of last year, we talked about, uh, growing throughout Texas, which we've always been doing, but, uh, also looking at key markets across the Sunbelt. Right. And so this year we entered two new markets, which we had not done last year, which was a huge, uh, accomplishment for us. But when we start to go down that process, we you realize if you have all these tools in place for your own company today about how you operate and, and all the things you do, and you start to go into a new market, you immediately have all these questions as to, well, how's it going to work if we like uh, simple things? How do you get your permit for your TI, right? You can't assume it's the same way, but we have a process for that here. Well, is that process going to work there? We don't know. So we asked the question. So we started doing that as we were talking about buying the first asset in, the, in a new market. And we realized real quickly that we needed a, a different set of criteria, a different set of questions to ask ourselves for every single market we were entering. Same process, meaning you, you have to go through the process of learning the market, understanding the market and what's going to be needed in that market. But every market is going to have a different list of questions. And so um, there's got to be flexibility in there. So what we did is we created a master process, right? And then we can modify that. And when I say process, these are automated tools within our FOS system that are digitized. Uh, they have things called triggers in them that automatically tell people what to do when. And now we can adjust that by market. So when we go into a market, we can basically hand select what that market might need. And now our process for that market immediately adjust in our system without us having to do any work which is priceless, right? Because we're not, we're not uh, doing double work. We're not missing things. We're not recreating stuff. We basically have covered all the bases. When you go into a new market, what do you need to identify? I mean, I could go down a list a yeah. mile long, but who's the broker? Uh, what are the city requirements? Are there different tax when we close? Are they going to charge a different tax for this, a different tax for that? Uh, what, you know, what is title? How does title work in that that city? What are there legal? Are there laws that we don't understand about transacting real estate? There's a million things that you have to go through. Um, and what we do is before we go into that market, we go through that list and we make sure that anything we need to know before we pull the trigger on the asset, we know. And so sometimes that happens simultaneously where you, you, you're looking in the market, you identify a deal, you start negotiating, but you, you realize real quickly, if, if this is going to become real, we've got to get all this stuff identified. Well, we streamline that so that we can do it instantly. So we, we identify what we need to know, when we need to know it, the, the timeline, and so that we know that all those boxes have been checked before our money goes hard. And uh, now we, we've done it twice. And so we said, okay, since we've done it twice in two new markets, let's go back check ourselves in the other markets that we moved in through Texas that we just thought we already knew because we're in Texas, right? And so we back check ourselves in Houston. We back check ourselves in San Antonio, make sure that we've checked all those boxes. You end up finding that there's nuances in every city that you you kind of need to adjust how you look at that market. And so we've we, we've now got a really good framework and a really good foundation of when we go into a new market. We know all the questions asked, but then there's another layer that we add into that where we do this deep market analysis. So we get anywhere from a 12 to 15 page deep market analysis report that we do internally. This is an internal thing. We have, we can talk about some of the people that we've brought on, but one of those being a economic strategist that we brought on this year, um, 
who's phenomenal, who works with the technology team and the operations team. So he sits right in the middle and he knows exactly what we're needing to accomplish from a operations, budget, plan, execution, acquisitions side. And he also understands the technology side and all the information needed in order to get the right data to flow into those processes of going into a new market. And so what I was mentioning before, truck uh, truck corridors and traffic patterns and all that stuff, population growth, rooftops, we gather all that information. So we get a clear understanding of the market from a data standpoint. And then we have this list of criteria that we need to know and understand about the market before we move into it. Those two things together, together give us a great confidence in uh, when we go into a new market, we've at least done our homework. And this is this is totally separate from looking at assets, driving markets, understanding if the building quality is right, if the tenant mix is there. That's totally separate. That's a deal vetting process. That goes back to what I was saying with Kepler, right? This is just entering the market. And so we believe uh, that Again, going back to the very beginning of our ability to to solve problems, this is another one of those problems that we figured out how to solve. And the fact that we're a company this size moving this quickly and we can utilize tools like this and identify how to move into a new market quickly, identify the opportunities with them in that market quickly, act on them quickly, uh, track them efficiently, and then operate at a high level, I think it just gives us a huge advantage on being able to look across the Sunbelt and not just have to be an expert in Texas. Um, and that's proven to be the case. I mean, we've had, we have a, a nice portfolio in Florida, uh, in Orlando, and we have a nice portfolio in Memphis. And we're looking to expand in both of those markets and uh, more to come on that early next year. We sent over $300 million of LOIs last week. That's Maybe true. Maybe those are in Texas. <laughs> Maybe they're not. I would say they're not. Well, part of them. Part are. of them are. Yeah. All right, let's kind of, I think these last two are important. Okay. Uh, let's talk about dashboard utilization and accuracy. If you're a small business or not a small business, uh, what you can probably know is that uh, there's a lot of businesses that create dashboards and they don't really work. They don't really give you the data you need. They're kind of an afterthought. Yeah. But a great dashboard can be a, a lifesaver. Uh, so maybe we start there, um, and then I want to finish on monthly financial reviews, kind of how we kind of stay on top of things monthly. But sure. uh, data pipelines rebuilt to reach high level of stability across all reporting. What does that mean? Yeah, so it, this is right in line with what I mentioned on all this data collection uh, through properties, uh, the importer tool. This really goes back to technology. So we've got a lot of processes in place where when we go into meetings, that information uh, is flowing through to give us a view somewhere, right? We use dashboards. So we have a, a, a tool that we built that we can display any metrics across our data uh, pipelines. And when I say data pipelines, not asset pipelines, but the actual data flowing through our system, we can see that in a, in a myriad of uh, ways across uh, different departments, combine the data, Look at anything we want to see. So where you run into that problem, like you said, a lot of companies will create dashboards and I will tell you any technology team would tell you they get requests for dashboards all the time and they hate it because they're like, oh, great, another dashboard no one's going to look at, right? Because <laughs> you think in a moment, I would love to see that, but you look at it once, then you never go back to it. Well, what we've done is identify along with our 
weekly executive meeting, what are the most important criteria or, or data points that we need to be looking at on a certain cadence? So that might be weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, and, and, and then by department, right? So every department, the operating, the operating team at the very top has a set of dashboards that we look at, uh, financial, operating, and then each department has those as well. So over the years, we've continued to improve those. And this year, because of all that improvement in technology, we've really dialed in, one, what is displayed on those to get us the best data to make the best decision at all times. But the the real-time accuracy of it is uh, improved tenfold. So in the past, there was still a lot of manual things that had to happen behind the scenes from accounting uh, to technology, to a department level, to an approval to get information into a system that then had to be pushed to a dashboard. So there was a lot of like work to get a dashboard to look correctly, right? Mm. Just so you could go into a meeting and go, yep, the number's correct, right? Well, that creates a lot of pain because someone down the chain already knows that number, right? In the department, they're like, I'm having to do all this work to get this number into this dashboard just so you can see it when I can just pull it right from the accounting software and just go, well, tell me what number you want to see. I'll just tell you, right? Yeah. So that that defeats the purpose because what you're trying to do is have a, a shared location where multiple people, multiple departments, multiple teams can see the information clearly and concisely, much like the investor reporting, mm-hmm. right? To create that shared consciousness. And so what has happened now is that we, those data pipelines this year, we rewrote literally uh, the technology team rewrote our entire data pipeline. So imagine we have millions of lines of data, millions. And it all lives in a big data warehouse that we built. And so it's our proprietary data system. It's not some offsite thing where we pay somebody to have a storage deal. We have a a data warehouse that we built that has data pipelines that flow in and out of it, of all these different locations that was completely rewritten into a new location. And we made the transition from the old to the new with zero error and zero conflict it just happened so smoothly. But what that did is it ensured that every one of those connections and every one of those ins and outs of data from one department, from one accounting system, from FOS, from our importer tool, from our um, uh, underwriting, all of that was happening seamlessly on top of that. And I think they actually just put out a LinkedIn post this week that shows how they track to see if there's an error mm-hmm. and we can be highlighted. So In doing that, they were also able to uh, create a view so that they knew if there was ever a breakdown in data flow, right? Data being pushed from one place to another, or it was supposed to get somewhere and it didn't. What that has done is given us ultimate confidence and and assurance that when we walk into a meeting, the data that is being displayed in a dashboard is real-time and accurate and live. So when we're looking at cash balances, uh, revenue for an asset, anything across the entire company, we know that it's live and accurate. So when you have that at your fingertips, right, that everybody's just doing their normal job. Accounting's doing cash recs every day, collecting rent, paying bills. That's happening every day. Now, when we walk into a meeting, that same information that that is uh, happening already in some other location, we can see consolidated down to a number that matters to a lot of people instantly live accurate. And that that becomes invaluable when you're having meetings. So when you go into meetings now, there's really good content and meat to have on the, the screen as a 
a starting point for everybody to be on the same page. It doesn't mean you sit there and talk about the dashboard, the whole meeting. What you do is everybody is in agreement that this is where we're at. These are the numbers that matter. We're ahead or we're behind. We have work to do here. Whatever it is, it's right there, right? And so, uh, you know, the, the famous saying is if, you know, if you didn't measure it, it didn't happen. Right. Measure, you have to measure everything, measure what matters, you know? Yep. And that's what we think we've done is going back to even where we got the uh, things like uh, OKRs and flywheels. That's, those are from people that did things uh, like John Doerr, the, the measure what matters, right? Um, that's who wrote that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what we think we've done with this. And it's only gotten a thousand times better over the last year. And so our ability to utilize and have accuracy in those dashboards has become critical. And you pretty much put some meat behind this last one, but monthly financial reviews. Yeah, same thing. You know, as a company, you just want to have clear understanding of how the company is operating financially at all times. And you shouldn't have to, if you're a company like ours, it's not like there's a bunch of ups and downs every day. So on a monthly basis, you should have a very good picture of what's going on because these are big events that happen, right? They're either big acquisitions, transactions, sales. Those are the big events. And then in that, you're operating normally, paying bills, collecting rent, collecting fees, whatever it is that, that we're doing on a daily basis. That is very predictable. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of ups and downs in that. So when you get to the end of a month, there shouldn't be a lot of surprises. So what you're looking for is the nuance and where you can improve and where things might be getting off in the future. Well, you got to have really clear uh, metrics to measure to be able to spot those things, right? Mm -hmm. So you're looking for the nuance and the ups and downs. So we measure some really uh, micro things so that we can start to see way before we might start to feel pain uh, like the rent growth is a great one, right? Because rent growth is a, a, a huge measurement of potential NOI for the asset, which affects investor return for one, but it also affects uh, property management fees or uh, the ability for anything to happen at the asset, right? How much TI you'll be able to spend, how much CapEx you're going to have. So we track that way early on across the whole portfolio and at the ac uh, asset level to a very minute level so that we can see, are we continually getting slightly higher rents than we projected or way higher rents than we projected? But we can see the trend across the whole. So rents might still be up across the whole portfolio in, a, in a, any given situation. I mean, any given timeline. But if you're starting to see that growth slow, then it's something to watch. Doesn't mean it's bad, but you know, you might've hit your top in terms of rent growth even for just a asset, right? Like we were trailing up, we got to 950 triple nets, but now everything's right at 950 triple nets. Can we push or is that the market? That's the market, right? So you start to learn what not to do in the future. So then you don't go buy the next deal and say, well, we're already at 950, let's go to 11 on the next one, right? Yeah. That's that's where people go wrong. And we've never done that, but it it's uh, it's obvious to see if you're not tracking these things, how you can convince yourself that it's always going to go up and to the right. And so what we do is as a company, try to be very diligent to know what's going on at all times. And that's what that monthly financial review does. If you take it to like forecasting cash right. and anybody listening to this knows that we're, we're heading into uh, potentially a period where things are going to be slower and right. you're just sitting here going uh, and, and an investor calls and says like, you know, how are you going to manage cash through all this? Are you going to stop distributions or, you know, all the things that could happen? 
you've always had a really good answer for uh, how we'll know to start conserving cash, yeah. how much we'll conserve, when we'll start conserving it, when we'll right. stop conserving it. So when you think about cash management for 2023 and you tie it back to uh, you know everything we've talked about, well, how does this meeting kind of help you understand where our cash levels need to be? Yeah, th- this ties into our monthly distribution meeting where that really comes into play. And so we're constantly looking forward 12 months in the asset. And so first off, that that reforecasting process that we do monthly allows us to say, this is what we thought was going to happen. This is what happened. That means this is now what the future holds, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can start with a pro forma, right? And that's what a lot of people do. A lot of people, and we know a lot of these people that are investors, right? That buy real estate just like we do. They write, they do a pro forma. They put that pro forma aside. They start operating the asset and whatever happens, happens. <laughs> because that's reality. And and to some degree, that's true. I mean, and that's that's what they should do because they're just, if they're working as hard as they can. But- what we prefer to do is start with that pro forma and then month one, this is what happened. That's our new metric to measure on. We never lose sight of what we originally said, but we should always be doing better than that, right? And so, or trying to do better than that. So we're always looking at different metrics. We're looking at original underwriting, reforecasting, right? And then our actuals. So we have original, actual, reforecast at all times. And when you're doing that and you look forward um, and you're doing multiple things. You're you're looking at the asset performance, but you're also looking at uh, the the longevity of your loan, right? And your financing, and you're looking at all these things together, and you're forecasting out and saying, "This is what right now, based on the performance of the asset, is going to happen from the day to day operations." Then, at some point in the future, we're going to switch from IO to amortization. That has this impact. At the end of three years, we either have to refinance or extend the loan or whatever the situation is for any individual loan. That is built into our forecast. So we're always looking far enough out to where if we're at a moment in time and there's an event coming that we can start adjusting what happens at the asset level today from cash flow, spending, uh, cost, all those things, right, to ensure that we're managing that cash leading up to that event, not getting to that event and saying, oh man, what did we do? We distributed all the cash, right? Yeah. And and I think any smart company should be doing that. But But if you don't have a plan in place, it can creep up on you because what happens is, especially in a market like we just went through, right? We're crushing it on, on a lot of rents and a lot of... Uh, on a lot of assets. And so what what can happen is your cash flow starts to build from an investor standpoint. It is great. It's great for us. We get to distribute more money. If you get too aggressive in that and don't plan for what could still be coming and you distribute too much money, right? And at this point, I'm talking about being way ahead of pro forma. So if an investor is expecting uh, a $5,000 distribution, right? And we're we're distributing uh, commonly eight grand to an investor, that's great, right? That's great. Except if you didn't plan for that and you get to the end of uh, 18 months and say, oh, actually, I need 25 of that back. Yeah. Well, that would be a bad mistake because you should have just never overdistributed in the first place. Right. For the investor, we were still outperforming, right? So that's just managing the asset. So the whole point of that is that's all common sense in my mind. But um, we have a process and a way that we do that that makes it impossible for us to let that creep up on us and get... Uh, 
over or out of balance with what the asset's going to need versus what we're able to distribute. And so our goal always is to maximize distributions while protecting the asset. And that's a fine balance. But if you're doing both, then you have you have to be looking at both sides. So if we're saying we want to distribute as much as possible, except for is the asset protected? Yeah. And any investor would want you to do that. There's no investor out there that says, would say, distribute me all the money and just hope for the best over here. Right. Right. So we're just balancing those two. The point of this is we have a process to do it. All right. That was, uh, it was awesome just to go through some of the operational highlights of the year. Obviously, there's been many uh, across the team. Um, those were some of the the few highlights, but it really, for anybody listening, I hope it gave a nice flavor for how we are thinking about business. Um, I think real estate tends to get put into this box and there's only a few things to care about. You do deals, you asset manage them, you property manage them, construction manage them. But I think there's a lot more to it. And I think, again, it's what makes Fort so special is the depth at which we think about things. And what we often say is the foundation to scale this business is has been set. We're getting a lot more done with a lot less effort. That problem-solving culture of just continuously finding things that are causing us entropy. Anybody that I know what entropy is, that's energy leaking out of your company and continuing to make it stronger. And uh, a lot of this is stuff we've come up with. And a lot of it's just following the best practices of the best companies that have ever existed. I think if there's one thing uh, that's not lacking at this table, it's a little bit of confidence and we tend to uh, set the bar very high. Yeah. And, you know, real estate companies in general, like you said, they they tend to focus on just the the real estate itself, right? Which is is super important. But if you look at our results, what it would say is, and you hear us talk about all this, very little was talked about in terms of the actual like buying the deal, right? right? Those are processes that we have dialed in. So we can ingest so many deals so quickly. We have a process of how we do it, what we believe better than anybody, but, or as good as anybody. But what you're seeing in terms of the numbers of buying 500 million is the output. That's the result of all the other things we focus on. Right. And so um, it allows you to do it where people miss. They think if they focus on just those deals that somehow they'll just find a way to do more. Well, it works for a very short period of time, but you realize very quickly in the life cycle of a real estate company, if you grow at any any scale at all, that you have to focus on these things if you want to continue to get bigger. Right. Uh, or not just get bigger, but get better, right. right? Which then allows you to take on more. And so uh, I look at all this as it, this 100% happened because of the other stuff. If we weren't focused on these other things, there's just no chance we would have been able to do this amount of work in one year. There's just no way. What's the the quote? Your your process is perfectly designed for the results that it gets. Yeah, that is so true. Um, all right, let's just r- run through some numbers. And then we are going to focus uh, the last few minutes on just some things that we are working on going into 2023 that are just kind of uh, new and things that we're very excited about. So I'll rattle through a few of these. If you want to add into any of them, uh, feel free. We did 16 deals uh, in 2022, uh, over half a billion, 500 million, 555,000, and $140 to be exact. We disposed of two deals, total of 35 million. Uh, We raised about 166 million of new equity. Thank you to all of our investors that helped make that happen. 
Uh, we our largest acquisition was 105 million, 104 million uh, in Houston. We acquired 4.1 million square feet. We entered two new markets: Memphis, Tennessee, and Orlando, Florida. Uh, we're looking uh, for 2023 to have several more added to that list. TBD. We hired 16 people. Uh, we opened two new offices. So we now have an office in Fort Worth, which is our corporate headquarters. We have a full-time office in Dallas, and we have a full-time office in Houston, and we'll soon to have a small office in San Antonio. We ran 150,000 property records uh, through our properties pipeline. We just want to touch on that one for a second. That's not a normal number that most people hear about. No, that just goes back to the Kepler mapping and our, our search for the best opportunities that match our criteria. So these are property records that we've vetted across all the markets that we're looking at and then filter those down into those best opportunities. So that number is is our ability to first search out class B industrial within a market that somewhat matches what we're looking for. And there was 150,000 of those. There was actually more. We narrowed that down to, to land at about 150, but that just shows you how many deals are out there. Now this is across uh, six markets, right. right? But you narrow that down, there's a ton of opportunity to the tune of thousands. Yep. I think there's 2,500 buildings across six markets that we believe are real opportunities at some point in the future. And when you think about that, you're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars of real estate. Now, are we going to buy all of that? No, we don't need to buy all of it. We just need to buy some of it every year. Right. And that's the key. And that, that, this is what that tells us is that opportunity is there. Yeah. One of my favorite things I laugh at is when people say, oh, there's just no deals out there. <laughs> I think I hope they th keep thinking I, we, I do too. And I think they are uh, the pr the process by which they sniff out what could be opportunities is is really their problem, and right. they don't know it. And and maybe they don't have the scale to know it, or the they care to know it. But there is a, a deal out there. There's um, always a deal out there, and uh, it actually doesn't matter what's happening in interest rates. We talk about this all the time: interest rates, uh, any of that. Right? The market has to adjust sometimes, but. If interest rates go up, price has to come down. But there's always a, a, a marriage there of a, a happy median that if those things align and your uh, ability to achieve a certain return can be met and you believe in the replacement cost of that asset, then there's no reason why you shouldn't buy it. And we think that there's a ton of opportunity out there at all times, specifically in this asset class because of the location and because of the replacement cost. There was a rally cry this year uh, called Operation Paperless. Yeah. And we now have Steve 96. Bailey. Steve Bailey, if you're listening to this, thank you for running Operation Paperless and to all of our phenomenal property managers who have helped execute on it. Yep. We now have 96% of tenants paying online. Yep. Why is that important? Yeah, it's huge. Uh, and this goes back to uh, being the best real estate operator in the world, but it's also one of the biggest opportunities within this asset class because of the nature of it, the prior ownership of it, the dispersed ownership of it. It just hasn't been managed very efficiently. And so commonly, many of the tenants when we buy an asset still pay like you could probably imagine with check or even trying to pay cash. Um, and they still are used to hand delivering those to a Dropbox somewhere or mailing them. Um, and over time, that that is super inefficient for a lot of reasons. But 
the amount of energy spent from a property manager to try to gather all that up every month, it can take weeks to just collect rent. And when you think about what a property manager could really be doing to generate value to the asset, that that is important, obviously. But if you can make it efficient, then they can spend way more time making sure the the property is looks great, everything's maintained well, that the new spaces are ready to go for new tenants. Um, if somebody's moving out, that that space gets turned quickly. All the things that really matter, rent should be the last of our concerns. If people sign a lease, they should pay their rent and we should give them an easy way to do it. And so yeah. we brought this to the modern era, which is not that uh, groundbreaking, but it's shocking that most people haven't done it. And so we have an online portal, uh, like most good real estate companies do, where tenants have to log in, create an account, set up payment, and they have to pay online. And so we sort of made it a non-negotiable. Steve Bailey took the initiative, ran with it. We tested it in Houston, thanks to, I believe, Debbie and our on our team in Houston. Uh, we tested it on one portfolio that we had acquired and said, let's just see if every tenant would be okay if we just forced them to get on the... And I say force lightly. We, we required them and said, you know, we need everyone to be on the portal. It's a good thing. Um, and we actually got very little to no pushback. Um, and it took some work, but we got it done. And that just opened the door to say, if we can do it once, there's no reason we can't do it across the whole portfolio. Now, this ebbs and flows every time we bring on a new asset, this number drops because however, 60% or more of those tenants when we bring on a new asset are not going to be on the portal. Right. And so we have to do that process every time. But now that's built into what we do. So step one is getting them on the portal so that they have a place to pay their rent automatically online on a specific date each month. That's also where they get their reminders, the follow-up, all those things. The next step is to try to uh, incentivize the tenants to do auto pay. And the more you can get that, the more that that is happening automatically, that's less work for accounting. It's less work for the property manager. It's more efficient for the investor. We have uh, more consistent revenue comes in, how quickly we can complete accounting each month because all the rent's collected quicker. Efficiencies just speed up. So when you talk about scale and we get to, I think we have 1,400 tenants or close to 1,400, we will after the first year, that's going to become 3,000 before we know it. And it's a lot of rent collection. And so uh, the more efficiency we can create around that, it will trickle through the whole company, just like some of the other things we talked about. All right, let's just talk a little bit, some forward-looking things. Okay. Um, if you want more information on our asset performance or our investor report performance, either A, join us as an investor, but look at listening, uh, at reading our annual letter uh, that'll be coming out with uh, more detailed figures on uh, you know, how we see the market, our portfolio, et cetera. I wanted to cover a couple things. Uh, this one I'm really excited about, and I think it is a testament to just the evolution of where we are as a company, where our people are as a team, their desire to elevate and and go and keep improving. Fort Capital University. Yep. This has been something that you and our leadership team, or select members of our leadership team, have been working on diligently for. A lot of 2022. Uh, we'll be working on it at the very beginning of 2023, and then we'll kind of be releasing it. Can you just speak to kind of what it is and what we're hoping to accomplish with it and why it'll become kind of a core tenet of how Fort Capital's culture evolves to the next level? Yep. It's inevitable that you have to do these type of things if you want to keep growing a company the way that we're growing it. If you're 
doing more every year, taking on more responsibility, increasing your ability to do things, and you're also hiring more people, right? You you're you have to create a path on how that's going to be uh, sustainable for the long term. And sustainability only matters in one area the most, and that is the people. If you don't have a sustainable path for how people are going to get all this done, then you have nothing because it'll it'll fall apart with the next hire that you have, right? So if you just take an example, you have one great person that has helped build a lot of these things and let's just say something happens unfortunate or or they leave or some their life changes or whatever, right? You just yep. don't know. Then your company has to then solve that. And if you don't have a way that you solve that, or if you don't have it built into your culture and how you do things, then the system breaks down and it's like starting over. And what a lot of people do is they don't have these paths designed for people to understand if if we're going to grow, the people have to grow. And what we realized is in order to sustain the growth that we have, we have to take the initiative, um, and I'm fortunate myself and a few of the other people on the team have gotten uh, the benefit of going through this type of thing at other companies and seeing the value that can be created if you do it right, but not just creating a growth path from a job perspective, but creating a growth plan and then providing the tools that that person's going to need in order to become the person that is required to do the things we're going to do. And often what ha- happens in a small company, and we see it happen even with people we know is, um, and it's not a, I'm not knocking anything that anybody has to do in order to grow their company, but oftentimes you reach breaking points in a company where you're growing. And the first instinct is to go try to hire somebody from the outside world and bring them in because they're, they have more expertise and you think they're going to be the thing that changes your ability, change your ability to do more or to uh, elevate your company. Oftentimes, no matter how great that person is, they were not a part of that building. They were not a part of that culture building. They were not a part of all those things. And so oftentimes there's friction and there's a lot of risk there, how they do things, why they do things, their culture, their background, all those things. And so you can do it that way. And it's inevitable that you do that at some point in the growth of a company if you've been in business long enough. But the best way to do it that uh, I believe and and we believe is to provide the tools and the resources for your people internally that have been here, that are in it day to day, that are already producing all the results to give them the tools and the resources to continue to grow and become the people, right? So you're basically just uh, growing your leadership from within. And we're not the only, lots of companies do this. I just believe it's the best way. Um, If you give those people the opportunity they're more bought in, they're more dedicated, they have more incentive, they're more aligned. And if they're the right people and they take advantage of the tra- the tools and the training and the things that we can provide them to become better leaders and managers through what you're talking about with Fort University, then we have something that is invaluable. You can't replace that. You certainly can't hire it from outside. And so uh, that's what we're uh, aiming to do. We're aiming to create a, a uh, university, which we're calling it university somewhat lightly, but this is a uh, required class, a series of classes that we have put together that our leadership team and pe- certain select people that are in our executive meeting every week 
will be required to go through to their benefit to give them the tools and resources so they can continue to grow as a leader and a manager separate from how well they execute their job. This is about how do they now foster and grow the next level, next layer of people in the company, right? That's how you build a sustainable organization long-term. You, you provide the tools and resources to your leadership and management so that they continue to be better leaders and managers, and then they pass that on. It also gives us a common language to speak about how we manage and how we lead so that this shared alignment and consciousness that we talk about in this, this, uh, this discussion every year that we've formed through our executive meeting, that starts to permeate the whole company in a more impactful way. How we talk about the company, how our leadership and management talks about the company to their people is more consistent, even though it's fairly consistent now. We basically are all working from a similar toolkit on what it means to be a leader and a manager within this company. And when you do that, you create a lot of alignment and you also show the next generation of people that might come to the company that there is a path to becoming a leader and a manager within this organization and there is a way to grow through this company. And we've identified, we've we've taken the, the painstaking effort to create growth paths for every position in the company. Um, and different different types of growth paths, whether it's an individual contributor or a team leader. And so we have these things in place. So in addition to that, you have to give the people at the top of those paths that are there today the tools to keep growing themselves because you can't be providing opportunity for people to grow that then look at you as a roadblock. You have to be growing yourself as a leader. And so what we're doing is giving the tools to the people um, that are the current leaders and managers in the company to keep growing themselves beyond their job. We're all executing at a high level. We're talking about what else. We're talking about who we are as individuals and what we're going to give back to this team so that we can create future great leaders and managers. And if you don't have those tools today, there's just no way to do it. And um, even people that have it naturally, even people that went and learned themselves or have read great books, that's great. But if you have different managers leading and managing in different ways over time, it always breaks down because eventually the people that they're leading and manage, manage if they're good, are going to keep growing in the company. Now you have more people that are misaligned with how they lead and manage, and that only gets worse over time, right? And so you've got to create consistency across an organization in terms of how you lead and manage. And so that all this hard work we've done with creating shared consciousness and alignment on operations process, how we do things that only gets stronger because of the culture of leadership and management, not break down because of leadership and management. And so uh, we've done a lot of work. We're fortunate, like I mentioned, we're fortunate that we have a lot of tools that we've learned in the past that we can take that knowledge, adapt it to who we are, adapt it to what works. And this isn't, uh, this isn't anything new. A lot of this stuff is stuff that has been around in companies for decades on what makes great companies. And so that's what we look to do in 2023. Um, we plan the first class to start at the end of Q1 in 2023. It'll be a series of four classes across, uh, take roughly a quarter to go through. Um, and we plan to um, add on to that as we grow in the future. I am so excited uh, about Fort University. I think it's a testament to what it takes to really become the best operator in the world. Mm -hmm. And you hear us talk about it. And as I said earlier, we truly believe that we can become that. Uh, our team is our most valuable asset. They are the people that are showing up. They are the front lines. They are the ones making decisions every day to drive value to this company, to drive value 
to our assets, to drive value for our investors. And the ability to now implement this, it's like a dream of every small business that you can start offering that leadership and management training. So I think this is a great place to end our 2022 recap and, and where we're going. Operationally, we've had a wonderful year that's showed up in the results and getting to kick off 2023 with something that's going to help grow our people and obviously all this foundation of process and operational uh, skill that we've built starting 2023. I'm excited about what's possible. Yeah. Anything's possible. Thank you for wrapping up 2022. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.